We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 23. This is another remarkable conversation that I had with my good friend, Kate Hagen. It was recorded in May of this year. And the reason why I'm pointing that out to you is because as I sit here doing this introduction, we are on day one of the SAG strike. And part of the strike rules entail that actors are not allowed to promote any project that they completed when they were under a contract. This includes not only stuff coming out in the future, but also movies they were in earlier as well, along with TV shows and podcasts are mentioned specifically. Do not promote your materials on podcasts. So I wanted to be sure to say that Actors Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn, who are mostly here in a producer capacity, had this conversation with me in May. So I wanted to make sure that I had their backs uh, because, of course, we support the actors and the WGA in their strikes right now. A lot of really important issues are being discussed and more power to them, solidarity. So I wanted to give you that heads up before we begin. This episode kicks off kind of like our Criterion Corner. We have this episode and next week's episode will involve a conversation that I had again in May with director Chris McKay on the films of Bud Bodeker, which go along with the new Criterion box set about the renowned Westerns. So I can't wait for you to hear that great episode as well. And we have another stellar conversation that's coming out pretty soon with Bilga Ibiri on the films of Stanley Kubrick, many of which are available on Criterion. 
So there's a lot of good stuff to look forward to. I can't wait for you to listen to it. I also wanted to be sure to give a shout out and a thank you to my good friend Mitchell Beaupre for putting me in touch with Criterion's PR company. I used to be on the list years before when I was doing steadier film reviews and um Mitchell was kind enough to put me back into touch. So I am now holding in my hands the disc for After Hours, which dropped this week. And also on the table is the renowned Westerns. So both of these episodes are going to have kind of a little corner where I talk to you about the physical media releases themselves. Of course, this month right now at Barnes & Noble, you can buy all of these discs for half off. So I encourage you to pick them up and support the great work of the Criterion Collection. The After Hours 4K Blu-ray Combo Edition is, as predicted, incredible looking, but the sound is what really blew me away, especially Scorsese's famous for his sound, his wall-to-wall sound in Casino with all of the great needle drops and the voiceovers. He loves a good voiceover. You know, he famously almost pulled his name off of Raging Bull if they couldn't hear somebody order Cuddy Sark, the Cuddy Sark line, which is a famous uh, Scorsese story. And After Hours has great music. Anyone who's seen the movie knows that firsthand. But also some pitch-perfect sound effects are placed in the background at key moments, and they really sprang to life when I was watching this new edition. So I encourage you to check that out, especially if you have like 4K um, DTS sound in your house or even just a really good receiver with 5.1, whatever you have, or I'm sure you will be impressed with this mix because it is stellar. It is presented in Dolby Vision HDR, and it's a knockout. I loved the special features on it. There is a really fun conversation about 20 minutes long with Martin Scorsese and Fran Lebowitz. Of course, check out Pretend It's a City, which was produced by another guest of the show, Ted Griffin. Martin Scorsese in this conversation with Fran recounts New York in the 80s and what he was trying to achieve with these characters. He addresses some of the criticism he got about the women And Fran is hilarious. They tell stories. And she makes a really great joke about how Catherine O'Hara is the type of woman you would imagine would own a softy ice cream truck. And just having her say that, you realize, yeah, it's true. You know, if you went out back at Catherine O'Hara's and you saw that, it's it would seem to fit naturally. There's a great commentary track featuring Scorsese, Thelma Schoonmacher, his longtime editor, director of photography, Michael Ballhaus, and actor and producer Griffin Dunn, and producer Amy Robinson for you to enjoy. There's also an older documentary about the making of the film featuring Dunn, Robinson, Schoonmacher, and Scorsese. There's a program on the look of the film featuring the costume designer and the production designer deleted scenes. And one of the stellar highlights for me was reading the masterpiece of an essay by my friend Sheila O'Malley, who has been on the podcast. Sheila is a knockout writer. Her blog, The Sheila Variations, should be a must read for anyone interested in film, especially the craft of acting. She's 
a highly in tune literary writer who, like me, will write things with a stack of books next to her. She took a bunch of pictures of what she was looking at when she was working on this essay, and it all pays off. The essay for the After Hours Criterion is one of the best essays that I've read in some time. They always have great essays, don't get me wrong. But it was really good to see my friend Sheila get this essay because she is the perfect person for it. She cites Kafka and Hitchcock and the Odyssey. And I don't want to spoil a thing. I think you should read it. I believe it's online for you to read as well. The art for this edition is gorgeous. And yeah, it is a beautiful release. So do check it out. But I wanted to be sure to kind of give you a little overview of the disc before we start on this conversation, which does cover After Hours, of course, but it spans Amy and Griffin's entire career. So without further ado, let's take it away. In season three of the podcast, my good friend Kate Hagen, a talented writer and senior vice president at The Blacklist, joined me to kick off a fascinating new series of conversations with the people behind the movies we love. We launched it with what is still one of my all-time favorite episodes, a long career-spanning chat with the great filmmaker Allison Anders. And then a few months later, we reunited to chat with Allison's daughter, the hardworking and acclaimed music supervisor, Tiffany Anders, as well. And today, Kate is back. We are so honored to welcome two extraordinary guests, actors and producers, Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson, who, along with their company, Double Play Productions, were behind some of the best movies when I was growing up, including director Joan Micklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter, director John Sayles' Baby It's You, Martin Scorsese's After Hours, which also starred Griffin, Sidney Lumet's Running on Empty, and more. An actor I think most people in my generation first remember as the teacher upon whom Anna Klumsky's character had an impossible crush in My Girl, which I think came out around the time I was 10, Griffin Dunn has had an impressive career on both sides of the camera, acting in films as diverse as An American Werewolf in London and Quiz Show, and directing films such as Practical Magic and the wonderful Joan Didion documentary, The Center Will Not Hold. Amy Robinson made a stunning debut as an actress in director Martin Scorsese's breakthrough film, Mean Streets, in which she played the female lead, Teresa. And in addition to the films she's produced with Griffin, she's also produced director Joan Chen's Autumn in New York, the Hughes Brothers from Hell, Michael Cuesta's 12 and Holding, Nora Ephron's Julie and Julia, among others. Griffin and Amy, I want to thank you so much for being here and apologies for that long intro, but you're much too impressive. So I wanted to cover all my bases there. How are you doing and how is spring treating you so far? Um, I don't know where you guys are. Where Are you in New York? I am in Phoenix. Wow. Yeah, wow. I'm in this very gray L.A. summer. Yeah, I heard it was gray out there. I just wanted to say I just saw Allison Anders when I was in L.A. And I hadn't oh. seen her in so many years. And it was so great. We had a get together in Pasadena where she lives. And she's a fantastic director and a fantastic woman. Uh, Amy, didn't we didn't we choose her as the winner on um, 
was it uh, Sam Gold Samuel Goldwyn's? It was her became oh, her first yeah. movie. We we oh, gave wow. it, uh, we, we were the judges on um on a program for uh, you know a, a contest whatever for um, first time screenwriters and we voted her and we we we, we talked about that because that really jump started her career and it was also clear you know there was a cash prize i can't remember how much it was but you could tell that allison needed it you know she yes. and she was so happy and she said honestly that was really the beginning for her so it was pretty it was a wonderful script and actually I don't think it ever got made. She's oh. still thinking about making it. So the next time you talk to her, ask her about it. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I went out to LA last summer, actually, Kate and I had uh, like brunch with Allison at a really beautiful place in LA. And that was so much fun to hear all the stories. And so next time we'll be sure to ask her and try to get this movie made. Maybe you guys can produce it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. Yes. Yeah, well, your work throughout the decades is just incredible. And obviously, we could get started any number of ways, but why not begin at the beginning? So how did you two meet? And what led you to the creation of Double Play? Well, it was uh, Triple Play. It was Triple Play. Okay, originally. It, it, it started as Triple Play. Amy and I uh, met at a, uh, a mutual friend of ours who's a journalist named Jesse Cornbluth. And... Uh, uh, really hit it off, and my best friend at the time was the uh, actor Mark Metcalf, uh, who we know as Niedermeyer in Animal House. If that would happen later, and um, and, and I think the three of us, yeah, we were, all, I, we were all a little. Lo I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but we were all a little lost. It was summer in New York. And there was a tremendous amount of creative energy and we were all actors who weren't working. And so we had all this creative energy to put somewhere. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and which is what we did. And, you know, we, we, uh, we workshopped um, uh, Sam Shepard's cowboy mouth that Mark directed. Oh, and, wow. and, and uh, we were just, just, you know, not working very much as actors, me in particular. Um, and uh, Amy read this book called Chilly Scenes of Winter by Ann Beattie, um, who would, it was her first book. She'd been uh, published in The New Yorker, or short stories Amy was familiar with, and uh, bought one of the first copies and and said, this, this would make a great movie. Um, and there are parts for us. And so we um, had no idea how to make a movie, uh, produce a movie, um, but we certainly had uh, time on our hands. Amy, uh, Mark Metcalf had been cast as Niedermeyer and used uh, um, the, the money that oh, he wow. made, a good portion of it, to option the book. Wow. I think he got paid actually two thousand five hundred dollars for Animal House, and and I think we optioned the book for two thousand. Wow! So wow. We got to keep five hundred. Got to um, keep that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you could option a great book for two thousand dollars now. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> well, you know, we went to uh, uh, we tracked down Ann Beatty, um, who was teaching at Harvard, and we drove to Cambridge and. Uh, 
we dropped in on her and uh, she later said it was like three of her characters walked in her living room and we got along famously and um she it was a low price even then um but i mean yeah i mean in terms of the business you know and you're involved with the blacklist the book had a very fancy agent um Mm. and it had been shopped around it was already in print and nobody had picked up on it and no. uh, oh Griffin, I'm I'm blanking on his name. He he was H. N. Swanson. His H. name was Swanson. He, he, yeah. he represented Ernest Hemingway, Scott oh, Pitts, wow. who's yeah. quite old, uh Raymond Chandler, uh, and Ann Beatty. Um <laughs> that's extraordinary. Yeah. And he said, so, he said uh, you know, to I called him, you know, like cold called him, I think, and he said, Well. Uh, I don't know who you are, but you're a woman, and the person who wrote this book is a woman. So maybe that's a good good fit. <laughs> it is kind of amazing how often the like personal appeal is the thing that works. Like not going through the agent, not going yeah. through the studio, just like calling somebody on the phone, sending them a really nice email. It is really the currency this business runs on. And and Anne had a one caveat to um before optioning us the book she wanted to play a waitress with a beehive hairdo (laughs) whatever scene and uh and indeed she is she's uh in the coffee shop serving mary beth hurt and john heard uh their breakfast and she's got a nice booth going on i love that oh my goodness Um, the other thing i'm sorry that we learned really was after we got to option the book um, well, it's been always a lesson for me, which is as a producer, you're only as good as your material. And so we got calls from a few people. And one of those people was Joan Micklin Silver, who said, I, I wanted option that book. And oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> you guys got it, got there before me. So uh, would you be interested in me writing and directing it, it was like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Was this it was, after... a time, it was a time in Hollywood where really there there was this kind of a faux effort to on Hollywood's part to hire women directors. Mm-hmm. And the three most bankable and interesting were all named Joan. Joan Garland, <laughs> Joan Tewksbury, and Joan Silver. And we got Joan Silver. Um yeah. and she wrote this incredible script. Um, there was uh, uh, first developed at 20th Century Fox. Um, there was an executive there named Claire Townsend, no longer with us, who became very close with Amy. Um, and she, when she left, she went to United Artists. And United Artists couldn't have been a more perfect place. They, um, they gave creative freedom to the directors going back to when it was founded by Chaplin and Fairbanks and, and, um, Pickford, Pickford, Mary Pickford. Um, so they really left us alone and, and Amy and I and Mark had no production experience. Um, but we, you know, didn't do that thing where we pretended we knew what we were doing that crews never ever fall for. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I think they found us very amusing, um, and that we were all actors and, uh, 
and they were really supportive and we put together a great group and and you know a lot of new hollywood and old hollywood were involved you know before we get there you know i think joan was very much inclusive with us during the development she didn't just say okay you hired me now go away mm-hmm. um she we were very collaborative involved, very collaborative we were very involved with the casting um, we had always imagined Charles, the main character, would be John Hurd, and mm. she Ooh, nice. John Hurd, and had worked with him before. Between and, the lines, yeah, yes, yes. So um, we, and to me, it's also interesting yeah, as a producer, as I segued out of acting and and really stayed with producing, is that we were able to start our careers with a studio picture, you know, we weren't making, um, a little, it wasn't a, it was a low budget picture, but it was a studio picture. And so it put us into a lane. Um, and I, back in the day, the studios actually sort of made a couple of movies like this a year, you know, character driven, um, and particularly United artists that had, you know, Woody Allen and, uh Milos Forman and they were very very director driven and um and and we were one of the reasons we were also left alone was because they had a picture they were very proud of and took a huge gamble on um called Heaven's Gate. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um they were always um much more preoccupied with this very expensive movie that they had yet to see mm-hmm. until the premiere. Um, so it was, um, um, but 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 the release, uh, despite the, the the freedom we had um, and Joan had in making the movie, you know, when it was uh, came time, the the marketing department was very different than the produce, production department, and they changed the title to Head Over Heels. We had a very um, anodyne uh poster that none of us have a copy of to this day i know know what you're talking about that it's like a teen sex comedy poster you're like that's not what this movie is yeah really quite silly and um and it uh you know kind of came out came out during the, the the newspaper strike uh which wasn't uh helpful um and uh amy mark and i um you know bless our little hearts would stand out in front of the theater with flyers begging people to come inside. Um, but it, it, you know, it was, um, uh, it, it wasn't, you know, commercially successful. Well, it disappeared. And then a, a miracle happened, which is a guy named Ira Deutschman, who you may have interviewed or know. Um, he was tasked to run the beginning of United Artists Classics. Mm. He decided that his, one of the things he wanted to do was go back to pictures that really just disappeared, that he had to like. And so he came to us and to Joan and said, is there anything you want to change about your picture? We don't have any money but is there anything you want to change? And we said, yes, we want to change the title and mm-hmm. go back to the title of the book. And we want to cut the end of the movie 
off. Mm -hmm. Even though the actual end of the movie is close to the book, the tone of it was very different than the tone of the book. So he re-released the movie. It got, the first time around, it didn't get good reviews. The second time around, it did get good reviews. It was about, I don't know, a year and a half later. It was amazing, um, you know, to have that happen. So it 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 had a second life very close to its first life. That's such a unique process. It's so rare that anybody gets a second bite at the apple with their own work. And I can't even imagine what the original ending of Chili Scenes of Winter is like, because it's such a perfect bittersweet note to end that story on. And I think that's really indicative of all of the double play productions. You know, they have this amazing tenderness, but then they also have this really sort of true to life bittersweetness that I think is what part of what makes them resonate today. What is the experience like, though, of, you know, going through what you went through with the first cut of Chili Scenes of Winter and now, you know, 40 years later, seeing a beautiful Criterion edition of it exactly the way you guys intended it to be seen? Well, as as Griffin said, he got very verklempt, even though he's not Jewish, when uh, he, he saw our, uh, you know, we they interviewed us. Uh, they oh, were... Good very prepared and Mark wasn't here, but, you know, they interviewed him and they interviewed us together. And it was very emotional to tell you the truth um, to, and be, because Joan is not with us and Mary Beth is not well, and John is not with us. Um, mm-hmm. Peter Riegert is with us, but, you know, we were. North Gloria Graham is not with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it, it was, um, Kind of great. And, and, and also, I mean, Criterion. I mean, it was just such an honor to yeah. to be um, picked out. And and uh, we're uh, and, and we got a double play out of that, too, because um, I'm sure we'll get to it. But uh, After Hours is coming out as well on Criterion, which people have been demanding for a long time. And it's so... it's just incredible because it's like, oh, well, we're like these people that get to have Criterion movies, like two of the movies that we made when we were kids. Um, So it's pretty exciting. Very exciting. I was listening to an interview you guys gave in 1988 for Running on Empty uh, with Fresh Air, where you were talking about how you were drawn into producing as frustrated actors because of your love of material. And then in another interview, Griffin said something really interesting. He said, we were always good at knowing who would get along instinctively or putting that party together, people who should know each other. And I think that your first film is kind of indicative of both of those things, of being able to connect the right people with the right material and also click with um, the author and Joan and know that John Hurd was right for it, for example. And then um, also just your next film, kind of uh, Baby It's You, came from you, Amy, and it's kind of an autobiographical um, story, which I love that idea. And we're both huge fans of John Sayles. I did an episode about John Sayles with the author William Boyle last winter. Uh, The films he chose were kind of later in Sayles' career, but we kept recommending and citing Baby It's You throughout the whole uh, episode because I'd seen this one years ago and just fell in love with it. Yeah. So we'd love to know more. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it it kind of um, was a story, the story of the Sheik or the real story of the Sheik. I used it throughout my life. I actually used it with Marty when I <laughs> met him and was trying to get the part in Mean Streets, you mm. know, it's like, oh, well, I know a lot about Italian guys and uh, <laughs> I got kidnapped when I was in high school and, you know, I had, I had the whole patter down. And um, it always, I was thinking about this the other night, the the real character or the guy that it was based on, I shouldn't say the real character, he'll probably sue us now. But <laughs> I remember he stood in my living room one time and uh, he was lip syncing to Sinatra, just like wow. uh, Vinny Spano does in the movie. And he turned to me and he said a line, which is, there are only three people in the world, Jesus Christ, Frank Sinatra, and me. <laughs> I was 15, and I went, I will use this someday in my life. <laughs> it's a good movie. John used it. So, um, what was that experience like, sort of digging into your personal past and then, you know, trusting John enough to to write the script, to direct the film? I find Baby, It's You so fascinating, too, because it kind of anticipated that wave of 80s teen movies, but it's the best one of all of them. And it's like <laughs> it was a year before, like all the John Hughes stuff kind of hit. Right. Well, it came out just when Flashdance came out. Again, uh, the, the terrible history of our movies. It was like... <laughs> Baby, it's you or flash dance, you know. <laughs> anyway, I'll tell you the truth. It was difficult because you have to let go of your personal story because some of it was personal and some of it wasn't. And a lot of it was John. And also it was Rosanna playing a version of me. And Rosanna, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm big and tall and angular and Rosanna's small and has great breasts and is a, a completely different creature. But she was fantastic as that character. And I don't really think of Jill in the movie as me anymore. Okay, I stopped thinking of her as me as we were proceeding because it caused me a lot of it was much better to think of her as a separate person. Mm -hmm. And Vincent Spano was much better looking than the, than the chic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the music in that movie is phenomenal. How did you get the rights for all of that? And that must've cost a fortune. I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah. Well, I'll just say, and then I'll let Griffin talk about it, that Griffin just would walk around with this old Brown uh, briefcase and it didn't look like anything Griffin would carry. It looked like, you know, an old man's briefcase. And all of the music stuff was in there. Oh, and wow. He worked very, very hard on it. Take it away. Yeah. I, I was, uh, uh, I guess, the self of uh, the autodidact of, of music supervisors and um, would approach the artist directly um, uh, from... Uh, um, you know, Paul Simon, um, yeah. who would then I would get a, a, a furious call from Walter Yetnikoff, who was head <laughs> of CBS, calling me. I don't know what the censorship is on this, but oh, 
You can say whatever. You're fine. Cocksucker, motherfucker, you <laughs> cocksucker. I'm going to fucking kill you. Oh, I got no. a lot of those calls. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, the going to the Don and um, the Everly brothers hated each other. Um, so I got one to agree and then the other one. I said the other <laughs> wouldn't, so then he agreed, and it was a lot of a lot of going around. But um, but John um, picked up the phone and got all the Springsteen songs. I was gonna say yeah. the Jersey and connection, that, yeah, <laughs> and, and that that you know that just made, and and of course it was an ac- anachronistic, um, but it just felt so right the, yeah. the feeling of, of of Bruce's songs, and. Um, and they were friends, and Bruce is a great admirer of John's, and 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 gave us that for a song, which I'm sure Yetnikov wasn't thrilled about either. And um, but, but then that turned into a can of worms with the rights. I, the, the the you know you're, we we weren't anticipating you know the video cassette rights and all the all, all the things in technology that would follow. Mm-hmm. rights for that so, so we managed it finally and and you know we had to give um a thousand dollars to the our lady of carmelite in the valley uh in california to get the sinatra oh wow oh, fascinating <laughs> the sinatra either it's funny. I was lucky enough to see Baby It's You a couple of years ago at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. And I asked John Sales a question about exactly this. Like, how did you guys clear all this music? Because the music, it's just like wall to wall hits. And that's what he was saying, too. It used to be a lot easier to sort of cobble together and we'll make a personal phone call and you know this person. And now it's just become so monopolized. I think that's part of the reason we don't have great soundtrack movies anymore. And it's such a bummer. He mentioned it was a 60 millimeter print of Baby It's You. And he was like, this is the only way I can like guarantee this is like all the music we set out to use, used in the right context in the movie. But it's just tremendous. I mean, like I like started thinking about that ending with the prom band doing uh, Strangers in the Night. And I just like get misty. It's so powerful. I feel like music, too, is so pervasive in so many of your movies. Jen and I were just talking about how much Running on Empty makes us cry. Uh, But the thing in Running on Empty that particularly makes me cry is the double use of fire and rain. Is that something you guys were always thinking about in sort of putting these films together, what the the sonic and the music component was going to be? Well, yeah, I think that it it definitely talk about chilly scenes of winter that there was music mentioned in the book, uh, you know, and Charles is asked by his boss who thinks he's hip. (laughs) (laughs) Should he play for his son? But, you know, I also luckily for me was in mean streets and, you know, the soundtrack of mean streets was like a bomb going in the world. So um, it was, and I think Griffin, well, I have to say Griffin, whether John Sales made the call to Bruce or not, you were the original Bruce fan. You were always talking about Bruce and it was way before he was the boss and all of that. And um, Griffin is really a tremendous music lover. So. And, but, but remind me and 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 them was fire and rain 
did Naomi just write that in the screenplay? Did we have an alternate song? Well, first of all, the movie was called Running on Empty, which is a song. Yeah. And Jackson, who, and Jackson Brown, when he found out our movie was called Running on Empty, called me directly, and who I did not know, and he said, um, you know, I wrote a song called, and I went, yeah, I do. And <laughs> I was goes, not aware. Well, well, don't you want it in the movie? And I went, yeah, of course <laughs> we do. And, you know. Well, but, so you know the script wasn't originally called Running on Empty. So, I mean, Baby It's You was a song title. Mm-hmm. And then I think, and I could be wrong, that Griffin and I came up with the idea of Running on Empty. Mm-hmm. Even though Fire and Rain is the song you remember from the movie, but yeah, but but Sydney, uh, I didn't respond to the Jackson song to our yeah. dismay. Gotcha. <laughs> it's always interesting. I feel like managing all those different cooks in the kitchen, and the actor wants one thing, the director wants another, the producers want another, the writer wants another. But then you end up creating like these iconic movie magic moments. Like I just started blubbering like a child when they're all dancing in the kitchen. I've seen Running on Empty before, but for whatever reason, this rewatch, I was like, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> you can really tell, though, that you guys spent a lot of time thinking about what the the musical journey of these films was going to be, too. And I love the bookend now that the, the weekend has an album named After Hours, like full circle of naming movies after songs. And then the weekend is named... <laughs> an album after one of your movies oh that's great well yeah. I think it's also interesting listening to what you're saying about watching the movies in the ages you were because I think one of the things that you respond to is our movies were very bespoke you know they were oh. handmade <laughs> and there were a lot of details it wasn't just uh yeah, we'll get this and we'll put that in, stick this here and we'll get the music supervisor and he can buy this for cheaper. You know, we we did think about all of these details um, a lot. And we were very lucky, I think, as producers to have very established directors who were collaborative with us. That's wonderful. And that brings us to our next movie is one of the only films that I've ever watched twice in 24 hours back in high school. This would have been like early 90s, mid 90s was uh, director Martin Scorsese's After Hours, um, award-winning crime writer and a frequent contributor to Criterion Collection releases the great Megan Abbott sat down with me on the podcast and her first episode we did underrated or understated or her favorite Scorsese movie she didn't think people were talking about enough and we loved going into after hours and then this is a movie that my friend Travis Woods likes to call a great gear shift movie uh one of those in the 80s along with movies that would come later of course something wild and miracle mile that sort of just change on you so it's written by uh Joseph Minion um after Hours is honestly my favorite movie to watch at the end of a really strange day or a bad date. I remember once I went out with a guy and like on the way to the parking lot and kind of giving him the maybe we'll be friends speech. I found out my car was broken into and it was like, I have to spend five more minutes with this guy. So I went home and like, I got to watch After Hours after that one. <laughs> so it's the ultimate for that. And Griffin, you are wonderful in this movie. So I would love to hear your memories of it. Amy, I think 
you were the first person to read this script. Is that right? Yeah. What can you tell us about it? In Utah. Oh, wow. Sundance? Yeah, it was the beginnings of Sundance, the festival. It was in June, and it it was the olden days where it was kind of wild and woolly. And uh, there was a Yugoslavian director there named Dujan Makaveev. And I had seen his movie, which was uh, Mysteries of the, I always say the orgasm, but I think it's the organism. Anyway, he um, said, well, you are from New York and my student is here. He's a PA here and he's from New York and he has written a script about New York and you should read it. So I went back to my cabin in the mountains and read this insane New York wild (laughs) adventure. And I immediately called Griffin and said, oh my God, oh my God, you've got to read this. And there's a great part for you. Great part for you. And of course we didn't have email then, so I couldn't actually just send it to him. So Mm -hmm. I said, I'm coming to LA after I leave here, I'll bring it. And I brought it in a box for him to read. So that's how it started. And I and I read it and I, uh, you know, it made me so anxious. I, I did not read it sitting down. I'd had to put the script on the floor and just turn the page with my big toe. <laughs> Something awful would happen. And then I'd wander off and go, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then I go back to it. And um, and we, you know, we just recognized this, that the Joe Minion's voice um was just so unique and just tapped into um, just so many Kafka-esque um, terrors and Freudian terrors and all this imagery um, and was hilariously funny. Um, we'd never read anything like it. Um, and I, it kind of, you know, it, after hours has become an adjective, you know, for a certain kind of movie. Um, um, and it, you know, when it, it came out, people, um, in, in America, they, they, uh, were, um, they, I, they liked it or, but it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of enormous hit we sort of expected. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, uh, you know, just adored in Europe, um, you know, and, but it was also a movie that that when we were trying to get it set up, you know, it, it, it people would either read it and go, "You two are insane." You know, <laughs> it made me sick to my stomach. This script, I couldn't finish it. I got a migraine. Or, <laughs> I mean, people literally. When Griffin said he read it with his toe, people threw it across the room and said, "Who? Why would we?" do this you know and the script in some ways was even darker that's what Uh, i heard yes yeah (laughs) and i think in scorsese on scorsese he even recounts some of the ways in which it was different that were like whoa that yeah yeah." or the original ending with uh imagery and how his mom did not react kindly to that which i found really funny (laughs) yes yeah. How did uh, Marty get involved, given that everybody was having this very, like, anxious experience of reading the script? But obviously people were responding to it, which is huge reading any screenplay to have that kind of response. 
Well, well again, it, this was Amy's idea, who, who knew Marty. And well, knew it, it was also a moment in time that was lucky for us because Marty had comedy through a terrible, terrible moment where um, Last Temptation fell apart. Yeah. That was his, you know, most important project that he was ever going to do in his life. And I knew nobody really, even though he had made King of Comedy, but King of Comedy was not a much of a success. No. People didn't. I knew Marty had a great sense of humor, you know, as a human and as as a director. And so we got him the script through our mutual lawyer named Jay Julian and Marty read it. And I think Marty also knew that he needed to go back to his roots and make a movie, not for a lot of money, under the radar, sort of, um, and pull it off. And if there ever was a winner in life, it's Marty. So he was going to pull it off. And 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 we were, um, we just done Baby It's You, and we worked with a, a crew with a with a now defunct union called Nabit. Um, and these were all people that Marty had never heard of or or knew, you know, had, had the experience to work with. Um, and so we were able to, like, turn them on to Michael Ballhaus. Wow. Um, um, uh, Rita Ryak. Um, these were all the costume designers. These, these were all people that went on to work with him with other Definitely. movies. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so we, you know, um, and, and he brought it in, um, you know, for a price and, uh, you know, his next picture was then, um, with Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, you know, um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but it was, um, uh, it was an incredibly fun movie to make. I mean, it was just every day or night was hilarious and and uh you know the the mixer would have to you know try to drown out marty's off-camera laughing <laughs> expression of laughter on on the takes you know um and uh you know he came up with a, every every call sheet had a storyboard on it so the entire crew knew what equipment would be needed where the camera was going to be um, so everybody was just, you know, so prepared and, um, it went very, very smoothly. Um, it so, was hard, uh, but it, it was smooth and it was fun. And it was also, you know, uh, the Geffen company, David Geffen's company financed the movie and it was released through Warner brothers. Um, but, and they took a risk, uh, with it. Because Marty was a little bit right then persona non grata. People mm. thought he could not bring a picture in on budget. Mm. And uh, he proved everybody wrong. And he made a wonderful picture. And he won that year the best director at the Cannes Film Festival for After Hours. Which mm -hmm. I was there um, to Amy and Rosanna and Marty's um, regret. Um, they didn't go because Gaddafi was uh, threatening to. Oh yeah, that's right. To, to blow up um, all the planes um, 
going to the Cannes Film Festival. So the more important um, the movie star, the the less likely they would go. And so I I was there, and I was a rather large, a, 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 one of the few American attractions. Yeah. And Sylvester Stallone and and um, um, Schwarzenegger didn't show up. So wherever I went um, in the papers, I was called the bravest American. Um, there you go. We're going. <laughs> and, and, and it was, uh, um, you know, I, uh, people actually cheered when I went in restaurants and Jared Dupertu hugged me and Mew Mew kissed me on both cheeks. And, and then we had this screening that was, uh, I'm sorry to rub it in your face, Amy. It just kills me that you weren't there. Um, <laughs> oh. And uh, but I was there on my own, but and I got this incredible standing ovation, and it just went on and on and on, and I had never experienced anything like that. And I thought, how does this end? Um, well, do do they? And finally, a French woman goes, "You're supposed to leave. We can't leave until you leave." Oh, <laughs> that's why that goes on. Okay. Yeah. So I, I walked out and then the rest of the, you know, the, the theater followed. Um, but it was a hell of a night and I missed all my people. Yeah. It's it was- so cool, too, that you guys were able to bring back a couple of the sort of double play company players like John Hurd, like Rosanna in After Hours. And it's like it's kind of like if you don't know, you wouldn't notice it. But you're like, oh, look at that. More double play, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terry Gar was actually the first person cast. Um, she was a very, very. Oh, I love her. And very close friend. And um, so when we met Marty, that was like someone would go, you know, we even before we got this together with you, you know, we really love uh, Terry for this. And he went, Oh, great, great, great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was very open again. We were very lucky to um, besides behind the camera to some of these actors that he hadn't worked with like John and he loved Rosanna. He had a crush on her anyway. So um, that wasn't very difficult, but uh, it, it, it was again, a, a good collaboration, which which made it. You're right. It was a little bit of our slight little rep company. Maybe that's a good way of sort of segueing to talking about running on empty, which is also just incredibly cast. And I think that's another through line in every double play production. You know, you've got these tremendous actors who feel so natural together. In the case of running on empty, you're like, oh, I totally buy that this is a family that I'm ensconced in this family. As producers who are also actors, how do you guys kind of think about, you know, beyond the sort of circle of friends, company players, how do you think about, you know, this actor is right for this particular role? What's that process like for you guys? Well, you know, we went, always went to a lot of movies and, and looked at people who were coming up and, and uh, River, you know, he was 16, but Mm -hmm. you could see that he was somebody who was coming up in the world and was incredibly talented. And Martha Plimpton had been in a little movie called River Rat that I'd actually seen, I don't know, somewhere, not even in New York. I don't know, a guy named Tom Rickman wrote and directed it and I knew him from Sundance and I had seen it. And she was so interesting and different and, 
you, you know, like Sidney Lamette had a great eye for actors. And I don't know if we would have, he didn't want anybody besides River once mm. he met. And River was a little hesitant about the movie at first because it was close to his own life. Yeah. And I think that made him a little uncomfortable. And he and Martha were a couple. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of amazing because they were like these little wonderful innocents, but they were in love. Um, yeah, because this was around the time of uh, Peter Weir's movie, Mosquito Coast, where they were in the, uh, somebody was saying the cinematic universe of Martha Plimpton and River Phoenix, essentially. But this film I wrote about, I think I first saw it maybe like five years ago. I remember writing an article about my love for the movie. Of course, it's one of those sites that's like vanished into the ether now. I can't even find it. But this is one that just immediately I gravitated to. The screenplay uh, is incredible. River was nominated. So was the script. So tell us about uh, working with Naomi Foner. Well, we're still working with Naomi Foner. Um, All right. Aww, I love uh, that. You know, I think Griffin and I had always, we we had our little pile of ideas. By this time, we were developing a few things, and we always had this little pile of ideas of making a movie about the 60s radicals and what yeah. happened to them, and or a particular, but we didn't have a way of doing it uh, or the through line. And then there was this article in the New York Times about a family in New Jersey and the there was a boy and he was on the little league team. And then one day all the team and he was the star and they showed up and he was gone because it turned out that his family was living underground and they disappeared. And, mm. and I said, Hey Griffin, this is a way to tell this story. It's a family story. Um, and Naomi was somebody who was in our universe. Um, we knew her. She hadn't done a lot, but she was very much um, knowledgeable about that period of time and had a lot Wasn't of... Was she a red diaper baby? She was a red diaper baby, and she was married to a, and divorced from a guy named Eric Foner, who was uh, is a famous historian and wrote about that period. Oh, and wow. so we went to her with the idea and then we developed it together yeah because i'm from minneapolis and i still remember there was a famous member of the underground a woman who uh was like you know a soccer mom that kind of thing and we found out later she was in all the papers i think it was international news that she had been a part of a 60s um, group that had blown up someone someone and she went to jail for it and so when i saw this it immediately oh that was like that story I remember from growing up. Yeah. Yeah. It's and a really I, powerful film. Yeah. We were just talking about how it's a real, like, we're just not making them like this anymore kind of movie. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's such a human story. Like you were saying, Amy, it's just so rooted in the family and it's so relatable, but from, you know, a movie like that to then go on to be directed by Sidney Lumet to receive Oscar nominations, you're like, yeah, Hollywood, what are we doing? We could be making small humanistic stories like this. Well, I'll tell yeah. you something. We were, again, it was hard to get this movie made and Sidney, because he was Sidney Lumet, had something called a put picture. 
Hmm. Meaning he had this deal at a company called Lorimar, which is not there anymore. But uh, if he made a picture for a certain budget, they would have to do it. That's why it's put it's put to them. And he really wanted to do this picture. Uh, And so he used it as his put. So they weren't even that enthusiastic (laughs) about it back then. But um, Sydney was able to put it to them and and they were happy. I remember at one of the first screenings that we had in L.A. um, And this is when Mike Ovitz was the most powerful man in Hollywood. And we, you know, it was one of those card screenings and somebody came up, and whispered to us and said, Judy Ovitz cried. Judy there you Ovitz. go. <laughs> you know, I do have to let you guys know that um, my friend Jordan Harper, who's a novelist and a screenwriter, his uh, partner, Megan Mostner Brown, is a screenwriter. Uh, they're on the, the front lines right now of the strike. She only has two DVDs in her house. And one of them is running on empty, which is her favorite film ever. So this movie did touch people. So I just wanted you to know that, you know, woman has two DVDs. One of them is one of your films. Yes. What's the other what is one? the other? The other one, you know, I think it's a television show and I can't remember which one. It's like the most random. The only one. movie. You guys <laughs> are in rare company. company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was reading about two. Kurosawa said this was one of his hundred favorite yes. films, which is amazing. Um, you know, you you guys were talking about with Chilly Scenes of Winter, the sort of changed critical response. Were you guys thinking about reviews? Did reviews factor into what you were doing at all, or did you just kind of drown it out and say, "We know we want what we want to do, and we're going to execute on that"? No, I think we cared about reviews. You know, one of the uh, a memory I have that's just so. Um, I don't know. I feel so sentimental about when, when Chili Scenes of Winter came out. We went to the New York Times at that night when they're loading up the trucks, and we got a fresh copy off the truck and read it right there. It was like something Aww, out of a movie. It was like that's actually, wonderful. I don't know if you can see the poster in my background, but it's Sweet Smell of Success. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I that's where that. we, I think that's where we got the idea. Um, so, but yes, I mean, the New York Times was, you know, as important as, and Pauline yeah. Kale and, 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 you know, we read all that stuff about other movies and, and, uh, uh, you know, and to our dismay and shock, Pauline Kale did not give After Hours a good review. Mm. Um, she worked. got some stuff wrong. She really did. She, did. Yeah, <laughs> she, also, she also called me a second rate Dudley Moore in the interview. No. Which, <laughs> I, I admired Pauline Kale so much, and it really, really kind of hurt my feelings. She's wrong about that, Griffin. That's what yeah. we put on the light. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. so one of the big champions uh, of the double play, Uve, right from the start, was Roger Ebert. Mm. Oh, wonderful. He, he got it. And, and he got it right up, and we made the last double play movie that that we've made so far the two of us is a movie called game six um that and i remember roger and this was before he got so sick at Mm -hmm. um, sundance where we showed it and he said i really like this movie and i thought thank god for roger ebert you know he 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 got us um it did 
I loved his review of uh, Once Around, where he was kind of working through his feelings during the writing of it. Like, this movie irritated me. I was uncomfortable. <laughs> and like, I don't know. And then the last paragraph, but writing this review, I realized I loved it or something like that. And it was like Thank a three you. and a half out of four stars. And yeah, that's what we loved about Roger. He was honest about you know, his own process. And that is a lot of us for when we write about film, you discover your true feelings. Yeah. Sorry, Kate. Oh, no, you're fine. That you just gave me a great segue, Jen. Um, speaking of <laughs> movies that Roger Ebert gave three and a half stars to, I have to tell you guys, Jen and I's origin story has to do with <laughs> James Spader and particularly a James Spader movie that this will now have been the third podcast that we have talked about on. Um, I'm also going to wildly embarrass myself. Um, I think I am the world's number one White Palace fan and Jen is number two. Um, <laughs> this is the first time I've got some visual aids. I have a video store standee of white palace <laughs> and then i'm friends with uh the great video store movie madness in portland and they're like hey we got a donation we think you would like and so they sent me one of the white palace dustbusters um Whoa. which is like Rough the coolest that. piece does of it movies. have dust in it though because There's that's no dust in our okay. dustbuster um but yes jen and i love white palace um yes. we think it is among the most underrated romantic films of all time it's just terrific um how did you guys come to that project how did I think I read that you discovered the novel coming out of the Iowa Writers Workshop is that right well I think by that time we were pretty established as producers and we had been sent the novel in manuscript mm -hmm. and, and manuscript then was pages loose pages right mm -hmm. in a box <laughs> and, and uh you know, Glenn Savin wrote the book, who sadly is no longer with us as well. Um, and just this like masterpiece of a, of a novel that uh, we, we were we we knew. So we wanted it and we called the agent and said, we want to option this book. And again, Sundance figures into this. We were both there at this point and who comes walking down the hill. But Sidney Pollack and. Oh. Uh, he says to Griffin and me, uh, hey, I hear you you uh, you like this book that Mark, his partner, Mark Rosenberg, uh, and I like. And we said, oh, really? What is that? And he said, White Palace. And then he walked on. And I looked at Griffin. And I said, who do you think is going to get the book, us or Sidney Pollack? And <laughs> what they did, which this all sounds so treacly, I don't even like to say it, but they called us, Mark Rosenberg called us and said, listen, we know you wanted the book too. So why don't we partner on it? Wow. That's incredible. That's a, yeah. It still is blows my mind to think about that. And, and it no reason led to, to a lifelong friendship with Mark. And I had Aww. a very long friendship with Sydney as well. And, um, and we partnered on the, on it. And, and Alvin Sargent wrote the screenplay. Well, you didn't yeah. take credit. no credit for Alvin on the script. What? He doesn't get, he did not take credit. He, look at the movie. Okay. Who, who, did, who does? Uh, Ted Talley. I was going to say, wasn't it Talley? Uh, yeah. Right. 
Yeah. I've always been fascinated by that because obviously I look at eBay for White Palace things, but somebody had a shooting script draft up and it was only credited to Alvin Sargent. But I was like, Ted Talley is credited on the movie, which is so interesting too. It's like his precursor film to Silence of the Lambs, which is wildly different than White Palace, even though it's a book adaptation. Um, yeah, it's such a terrific film. Who do we have to to beg to get a beautiful American Blu-ray of White Palace and the double play box? set please criterion (laughs) yeah yeah we're like who do we call it criterion can we do this (laughs) yes please do that let's call peter becker someone knows his number somebody yeah absolutely um but it's i don't know it's one of those movies that you watch now and you're just like why is everyone not talking about this film all the time their chemistry is terrific it's such a real love story in a landscape where so much is treacly and feels artificial and not like real human beings um i'm wondering how you guys sort of put the cast together for that film because you know that's a little bit off the beaten path of folks you had been working with on the last couple of films? Well, Susan, I think, was always a a strong choice for that role. Yeah. Because Susan could play the sexuality and could play the lower middle class part of it and wasn't afraid of it. Although I think it stretched her. It really did. It was uh, it not the easiest performance for her. Mm-hmm. And Spader, it was interesting because he isn't like the typically Jewish looking guy. Mm. Um, but he curled up his hair and he's a great actor and they had wonderful chemistry. So and the uh, fact that he won uh, Best Actor in Cannes for Sex, Lies and Videotape didn't hurt either. No. Mm-hmm. That was my thesis topic, Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. That was kind of the link to uh, to Kate and James Spader and White Palace. Yeah. Now here we are. Um, yeah. I'm also selfishly like, I know there are scenes that got cut from the movie, and I would love to see that director's cut one of these days. <laughs> well, I think that, that if you get the criterion to do it, then they can go back to Luis Mandoki, and maybe he has hidden away a director's cut in his storage space in Mexico City. That so, was I, my question. What led you to Mandoki for this? Trying to remember. He's so good at, at human relationship drama. Yeah, well, Do you have in front of you what the film he made before is? Yes. It was um, a, Gabby, a, a true yes, story. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think we love that film. Yeah. We fell in love with that film and he was very eager to do it. And because you know, because we were partnering with Mark and Sydney, they were much more in the bigger Hollywood cycle than we were. So it was a, it was different from mm-hmm. our other movies. But um, going back to the script, I mean, Ted did write the script, but then Alvin came in and Alvin had worked a lot with Sydney and I got really close to Alvin. Alvin came to St. Louis and like your Dustbuster line that you just mentioned, that's Alvin. Oh, wow. (laughs) So he he just brought a lot of that color to it. And Alvin often doesn't take credit. I mean, Alvin wrote a lot of stuff on the way we were. Mm. Oh, wow. Gotcha. On that either. So uh, one one Alvin story that uh, um, I I, I have to share that has nothing to do with any of our movies. But um, Alvin. was in uh, 
Midwest, was married, uh, engaged to a uh, woman whose father owned a, he was a shoe king. It was a, a, a chain of shoe stores. And he was, um, and Alvin was going to be um, given a prominent position in the shoe store. Mm. And he said uh, to his father-in-law, he goes, you know, I, I know it's silly, but I really want to be an actor. And um, I, I, it would just give me like a few months to see if I can be an actor. And he gets a headshot taken and sends it to all the studios and gets a phone call that Fred Zinnemann wants him to be in um, um, just went on my head. Uh, from here to eternity. From here to eternity. Wow. And um, and clearly a mistake must have been made, but he was then given a ticket um, to fly on the Pan Am Clipper to Honolulu. <laughs> and um, he had a, a, you know, a very small part. Um, and he, one of his scenes was with Montgomery Cliff. And um, and the ADs are bringing him water. It's a very hot day. They're bringing Monty water. And, and, and Montgomery Cliff goes, hey, can you bring these guys some water too, please? And, oh. and so the famous scene uh, that at the outbreak of the war, the most important um, moment is when the plane, Japanese plane, comes down across a playing field and cuts down a soldier who's screaming, the Japs are coming, the Japs are coming. So they're all lining up. Everybody's, you know, the crew, people who have their day off, they all come in to see this shot. And it has to be perfectly timed with the plane and the squibs and going off. And the actor was playing the part and it's an action. And the guy's running down and he's already tired. And he goes, the Japs are coming, the Japs are coming, the Japs are coming. He goes, cut. And Zimmerman says, the actor, I go, do you realize this is how important this is? This is the beginning of World War II. What mm -hmm. brings us in? And he goes, oh, okay. You know what? Forget it. Who can do this? And Alvin raises his hand. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and they, that's Alvin screaming at the top that's of his awesome. lungs. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> oh, that's And by so the way, cool. he never went back to the shoe business. Okay. Yeah. I mean, after that, yeah. That's incredible. I This is part of why Jen and I love having these conversations. It's just all this, like, you know, stuff that you could never read on IMDb trivia or even in a book, just all these great sort of digressions and avenues and people, the ways people find their way through the business are always just endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And Alvin was just... Uh, he was a great person and a, and a wonderful writer, and he was he was extremely self-effacing, and yet he was also incredibly handsome. If you look at him, you know he just right up till the moment that he passed away. So, mm. such terrific scripts on all these films. It's I, it's so helpful to start with these tremendous foundations, you know. Um, I wanted to ask too, I, I believe I read that Once Around was discovered kind of the same way that After Hours was discovered um, in terms of coming out of Columbia University. Is that right? 
Well, Malia Scotch-Marbo was a student at Columbia and Frank Danielle, who was also used to run the creative part of Sundance said to me, you know, Malia, she was your PA on uh, mm. a project. I said, yeah, she, he says she's written a wonderful script. Uh, so everything happens. I never don't read what these guys from, you know, Eastern Europe tell me to read. So, um, <laughs> I read it. I gave it to Griffin. It was also a very unusual script. You know, it came from so many different directions. Mm. And I just saw Richard Dreyfus recently, and we were talking about Sam Sharp and what a difficult character he yeah. was. You, know, you hate him and you love him and you feel terrible finally in the end when he he dies. But mm -hmm. you oh, why is she going with this guy? Yes, yeah. you, you know, you know uh, and and Richard just embraced it so strongly and played it for all it was worth. But that was all in the script. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, but we did, we, you know, we were looking for a director. And I went the first weekend in the Quad Cinema in 13th Street. And I saw a film called My Life is a Dog. Yes. And I I I wept uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the greatest movie I ever saw. Yeah. It just hit me deep. And I go to the phone booth and I call up Amy and I go, We found our director. It's Lassa Hallstrom, a Swedish guy. You, you just you you gotta see this movie. And I went back in. And I saw it a second time. And so we began our search for Lhasa. He was, you know, um, um, he was rather hard to find. We got a number of an archipelago house in an archipelago. He couldn't find him. And uh, and we had offices at MGM. And I had my door open. And there was a water cooler outside. And um, I heard somebody say to this man, goes, oh, I love my life as a dog. And the guy with a Swedish accent said, oh, well, thank you. That means so much. And I went out and I went, are you, you're Lasse Hallstrom? And he goes, yes. <laughs> and I said, get in here, get in here. <laughs> um, got him. And, you know, it was his first American movie. And then the, the, the inside story also about that movie is that at a certain point, we wanted Lasse to direct it and we wanted Richard to play Sam Sharp and, um, Somehow, Dustin Hoffman got hold of the script. Mm. Uh huh. Okay, you could kind of see said, him as a Sam Sharp. I right? want to play this part, mm. but I'm not sure I want to do it with this director. I don't know who he is, and mm. I don't know who Holly Hunter is. And Griffin and I had to make a decision and say no. Yeah. Well, it actually. You know, he was also famous for kind of backing out of things, you know. Yes. Minute mm -hmm. and, and and to get Michael Ovitz to agree to let his client be in this in the first place was <laughs> a company called Cinecom, which was not a well-known company. Um, and Dustin, who, as an actor, was an idol of mine from mm -hmm. the time I saw The Graduate. Um he, you know, Dustin would call me 
at seven almost every morning. Oh wow! To, to say not 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 laws and just go. I'm not really sure if I should do this. I'm not really thing, you know. And and then we talk about acting, and I was like in heaven, you know. Yeah. After about three weeks of this, my wife would go, "Oh God." <laughs> you make yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, my job with Amy, Amy, you know, would always remind me just keep him in the movie. And I said, but you're gonna do the movie, right, Dustin? You're definitely gonna do the movie, right? And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he calls and says, oh, you know, there's this play. Uh, you know this play, uh, Merchant of Venice. I went, yeah, I know the. Play. <laughs> Thank you for heard of that one. That's where this is going. And he goes, well, here's the deal. I'm going to do yours after mm. Merchant of Venice. And, but I mean, it's a life of a, you know, part of a lifetime. I got to do it, but I'm doing yours right afterwards. And, but, but the, the producer sure. side of this story is interesting. I think if you're interested in producing, which is that we controlled the rights. Mm. And there you go. Uh, in most situations, Mike Ovitz would have been able to just say, get rid of them. Dustin wants to do this in five years. We'll mm -hmm. control it. But he couldn't do that because we had the rights and we made this decision not to wait. Griffin didn't get to talk to him at seven in the morning or maybe <laughs> he still did. I don't know. But um, we we went back to our original plan, which was to do it with Lassa and Richard and Holly. And um, and then Lassa decided to do another movie first with mm. Sugar. And then he got fired from that. So um what was that movie? Mermaids. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know he got fired from mm -hmm. And so he did it and it ended up being the movie that it was and not Dustin Hoffman. We're calling Criterion about once around too. Just by the way, we're go we're gonna get more double yep. play productions <laughs> in the Criterion. But I there's just I think White Palace and Once Around, particularly as back to back films, are again to our point of like talking about running on empty. Just like the kinds of movies Hollywood has forgotten how to make or doesn't want to make. You know these like sensitive films for adults that have some thorny thematic things to dig through and I don't know I I have to imagine you know coming at this point and seeing the sort of legacy of these films and you know getting to do the Criterion interviews now like getting to see these films released is just really interesting is there something you wish you guys could like go back to the the younger versions of you and tell yourself at the time and maybe a moment of anxiety or stress around what are yeah, we doing question <laughs> um i i think i think the most um exciting time is when you don't know what you're doing because you don't know what there is to be afraid of mm. you know once once you've done it a few times then the reality of how difficult it is and how rare it is to make a movie and you know, Amy and I, between all these years, we we have countless scripts that we developed that, that mm -hmm. went nowhere. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when we were our younger selves, oh, let's make a movie of Chili Scenes of Winter. Um, we were just open-faced sandwiches and just went, oh, okay. And it just, we didn't, we had nothing to be afraid of, you mm -hmm. know. And, and what we didn't know, we weren't afraid to ask. 
and um, you know, but it I was, also think it was, and I think I would say to our my younger self or our younger selves that we kind of remained true to who we were. I mean, Griffin and I shared a love of reading right from the beginning of our relationship. And we, we really loved books and we loved uh, things that came from books and we loved stories. And, and that is what I think uh, fueled our double play career. Hmm. It wasn't high concept. It was a, well, you know, can we make a movie in this genre or as they call them now buckets, you know, we didn't think about what bucket it fit into and god knows once around doesn't fit into any bucket at all mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know so it it's harder now because it it's all by algorithm well, uh, yeah that's true if it's okay i'd like to touch on a couple things you guys did um separately uh i do have to tell you amy when i talked to jeremy renner for hurt locker years ago i mentioned how much i love 12 and holding and he lit up he wanted to talk about that for like the rest of that whole interview. You know, I didn't like, have on... much to do with running at, with twelve and holding. Oh, you I didn't? Was okay. Executive producer on it, and it was oh, really, okay. Wasn't yeah, a, such that a good I had film. A lot to do with. What about Julie and Julia? I had a lot to do with that. All right. <laughs> what was Nora Ephron like to work with? Well, Nora was, you know, a force of nature, uh, but it it started out as a project that Eric Steele and I. Uh, got together on because he um, he optioned Julie Powell's blog. Mm. Oh, wow. I was trying to make a movie about Julia Child. And when I read the article about the blog in the paper, I all of a sudden had one of those epiphanies, like you could combine these two and tell the story of this girl in Queens who's trying to cook every recipe and of Julia's love story. And I knew Eric and I found out that he had optioned it. So I said, look, do you want to have lunch? And maybe we can talk about um, putting this together. If you don't like it, that's fine. You can do your movie and I'll do my movie. But he loved the idea. And so that's how it started. And Nora came into it a bit later. The casting of that is extraordinary. Did you always have those people in mind? Was that Nora? Well, Nora never, I don't think Nora would have done the movie without Meryl, you know, <laughs> and and Meryl is just so perfect. Uh, and Amy, I love Amy. Adam. Me too, yeah. I adore her. And I think she had a hard road to hoe in that movie because she knew right from the get-go that the Julia part was this, yeah, you know what it was. <laughs> and, and Julie's was going to be a little bit less. And also, the Julie in the in the real world was a much uh, thornier character. Yes, Laura tends to write, mm-hmm. so I that was a little complicated, I think, for Amy and and Harg. Yeah, they're wonderful in it. Griffin, I'm a huge fan, and I know Kate is too of uh, Practical Magic. So that mm-hmm. was your first huge Midnight Margarita. Yeah, huge <laughs> movie. Yeah. So. I, I had actually made a, a short film that was nominated for an Academy Award called Duke of Groove, which led to earlier. Yeah, which led to me uh, uh to me making a film called um Addicted to Love with uh, Meg Ryan 
and Matthew Broderick. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And then, um, uh, which came out the same weekend as Jurassic Park, but. Mm. Oh, no. That no problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, that little movie. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I followed it up with, with, uh, with Practical Magic. Um, and I had met Sandy before who at Sundance who had seen Duke of Groove and was determined to find something for us to work hmm. on. Oh, that's nice. And, um, uh, so, so yeah, we, I, I worked on the, you know, developed the script until it was ready, then got it to Nicole, uh, who was working with Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tom and uh, you know so she followed up Stanley with working with me um, and uh, it was it was a really fun movie to make um, beautiful settings and uh, you know I was uh, the only you know I, I was the only guy for miles uh, <laughs> um, and um, you know they would um, uh you know, and I quite honestly, um, I struggled with whether to do it or not because, you know, witches and dragons and, um, you know, pointy hatted Merlins, they bore the shit out of me. I'm not a <laughs> fantasy person either, but, yeah. but this is my kind of fantasy film. But, yeah. but this, uh, what I, uh, I'm from a, a family of very strong uh, women. Yeah. And I, the witches stuff interests me a lot less than the generation of women that sure. I could relate to. And mm-hmm. I, and I saw it as a family story Yeah, um, that had a uh, eccentricity. And, um, and that was my, once, once I locked into that, I knew exactly how to make the movie. It's so beloved now. It's like a Halloween classic. I certainly watch it every yeah, October. Yeah. And I think part of the reason it particularly resonates with women is because you can sort of see yourself in all three generations, you know, mm-hmm. sort of seeing yourself in Sandy Nicole. And now I'm like, oh, no, I'm identifying too much with uh, Diane Weist and Stockard Channing, the older I get. <laughs> um, uh, you guys mentioned working with Naomi Foner again, um, and maybe that's yeah. a good way to get into the final part of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, can we see another double play production, please? I think Jen and I would certainly love to. It sounds like you guys are still collaborating on some well, fun we, stuff. We can't, we can't say the subject of what it is, but okay. um, um, but we are definitely excited about the idea, and 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 Naomi's been working on something we're quite excited about. But of course, there's a writer's strike going on. Yeah. um, um, I have a question for you two. Have you guys seen Game Six? I personally have not seen Game Six. I have not, but I remember the previews when you talked to her. I'm like, Michael Keaton. Yes, I remember when that was coming out because I worked at a film festival and I think I just didn't get inside to see it but I need you you guys should see that because that was uh our last double play movie until the the, whatever we're going to do in the future and it's and it is the only screenplay original screenplay that was ever written by Don DeLillo oh wow Wow. I definitely yeah, yeah I did not realize that yeah. And Griffin is wonderful in it. It has also a wonderful cast. Uh, and Michael Hoffman directed it. 
And and Keaton is uh uh you know, one of my closest friends. We did Johnny Dangerously together. Um I played uh, uh he and I played brothers in this Amy Heckerling, very silly, but again, this is another movie we've done. Another movie that's finding a whole other life where mostly young men just quoted over and over all the kind of crude lines that are, are in the movie. But um um, but yeah, we had a good time making that. All right, our next movie night, Jen. Sorted. Yep, done. Gotta do that. <laughs> done. Sure. And I have to say to close it, I loved your documentary about your aunt Joan Diddy in the center will not hold. That was an amazing documentary talking about the double play and the movies that you guys are involved in making people cry. Kate and I both cried multiple times. But yes, mm. love, love. Thank that. you. I, I I'm doing a um a four-part documentary now in oh, pre-production wow. of uh that's uh based on a book uh that you you two would really love called hmm. uh, rock me on the water okay. there's a copy right here um 1974 the year los angeles transformed movies music television and politics that's on the list absolutely and, uh, you, yep. will, you will devour <laughs> this book um and, uh, you know, they, it, it came to me, I happened to have read it because this is an era I'm particularly interested in. And, you know, when they made shampoo and, and, and China yeah. and uh, Watergate was going on and Jerry Brown was governor and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt <laughs> and the Eagles and, you know, the California sound. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was a, a teenager during that period. Um, so, I was, I, I, I remember everything and, uh, you know, was living in LA and uh, have all these little tangential, you know, relationships to many of the, the people in the book. So, uh, I'm, I'm just starting that, but I, but I'm also, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about. Um, uh, it, it's just amazing that those movies were made. Yeah. I, I mean, that how they just never be made again. Can you imagine um, going in and pitching a movie about a guy who pretends he's gay and sleeps with, um, uh, you know, a married woman, um, the woman's daughter, um, his girlfriend, and some, uh, you know, I mean, just like a, a movie about a sex addict, really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> or like Chinatown, uh, like trying to pitch Chinatown. Chinatown. Try to explain the water <laughs> rights in yeah. the valley. <laughs> yeah. Mean, um, you know, it was, uh, so hopefully, uh, yeah, well, um, I'm still working on some movies that seem impossible to get made, but I'm still trying. So that's wonderful. A series of, uh, books for almost 20 years of Travis McGee. He's a oh, yes. Who lives on a houseboat and, uh, yeah. it's been, been working on that a long time. It's uh, we have a really wonderful script now by a young woman and who will direct it. Her name Pippa Bianco. Oh, and she's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Giving Pippa a little plug here. So um, that sounds great. Well, you guys know your stuff. <laughs> 
Um, I, Jen and I are both old souls and we both have a particular affection for like this period. You're exactly talking about the like early seventies mm-hmm. to early nineties, I think partially cause that's when we grew up, but just like, I don't know. It was like the hope of what Hollywood could be. And then we have backslid into AI and whatever this whole mess is. Um, but guys, yeah. thank you thank so much you for so much. taking the time. This was thank tremendous. And, and really loving the movies. It means a lot. Thank you. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.